the agricultural revolution, we have to kind of rewind back because we've gotten from a political standpoint, we've gotten all the way to the 1800s. We got to this period after the French Revolution, Napoleonic era, where you have the conservative reaction, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things really don't happen unless you have the Industrial Revolution, unless you have the Agricultural Revolution, because both of them combine to create an atmosphere in Europe that quite honestly gives them the capability to have a political revolution. It's really difficult to have a political revolution if you don't have free time. And the Agricultural Revolution, the Industrial Revolution allow for, at the very least, the bourgeois class, that's that upper middle class, the ability to have free time. Um, because they are making so much money so quickly, uh, they're able to maximize the fact that they're, they're no longer having to hunt and gather food. Um, while obviously there were farmers before this and they're doing traditional agricultural methods, it is not anywhere near the explosion of agriculture that happened during the agricultural revolution. And there's really three main things that change. And you can write these down and just put maybe the three main factors of the, the agricultural revolution. One is the seed drill. So that's Jethro Tull's seed drill. Seed drill. Two is the enclosure movements and the enclosure laws in England. And three is crop rotation. Now, those three things combined create the ability for England specifically to explode their agricultural production to the point where many peasants don't have a job anymore because they don't they aren't really needed anymore. And we're going to look a little bit about the history of this. And I'm going to give you some contextualization of how we get to the point of agriculture um, and the agricultural revolution. So before this, before the enclosure movement, does anyone know during the Middle Ages, what we called the system of agriculture. We called it the open field system. And the open field system, what it did is it allowed you, if you were a peasant, to legally go and plant anywhere on a noble's land. Now, you had to pay the noble taxes, but if you could plant on that land, tend the garden that you are planting, you could eat from the garden as well as pay taxes to the noble at the same time. It was a very easy way for, to allow people to actually make food and collect taxes if you're that noble because they would pay you in food most of the time. Um, so if you're the noble, you have a lot of food. If you're the peasant, you have enough food to get by and things are fine. But it is definitely not maximizing the efficiency of that land. And in England, remember back, remember during Henry VIII, he was very popular for a couple of things, one of which was having many wives, two of which was possibly killing a few of them, three is breaking away from the Catholic Church. But remember when I said, hey, here's a quick commercial break, this is what he did with the monasteries. Remember when he broke away from the Catholic Church and he took the land away from the church because he's breaking away from the Catholic Church, there's no point in having Catholic land. So he takes the land away, but what, he, what does he do with it? He sells it, back over to the he sells it back to the land gentry and the nobles. And he goes, here, I need to raise funds for the crown. So he's raising funds, but he's also selling land back to his nobles. Now, later, 
when we get to the enclosure movement after the glorious revolution, so clearly 150 years later, we're going to be in a period where a lot of those nobles and those upper middle class peoples are starting to advocate within their parliament for changing the laws and the traditions around the open field system to instead go to the enclosure acts. And what the enclosure acts do is it allows for them to close the land off, fence it off, uh, and in the process of doing so, gives them the opportunity to, to utilize crop rotation, to utilize the seed drill, to make those nice, neat rows. Has anyone taken a nice trip down to uh, Highway 5 to Disneyland or just Southern California? When you take that trip and you look out the window because you're bored in the back seat and you're no longer wanting to look at your iPad anymore, what do you see? Row after row after row of like oranges or apples or just random trees, right? And the reason that they're in those night niece row, night niece, nice, neat rows is that what farmers realized is that there's a couple advantages of organizing your crops in nice, neat rows, um, and they had the technology to do it. So before, if I was during the open field system, if I wanted to plant, what would I do? I'd use an ox. I'd put a big plow on the back of the ox. The ox would walk around, or a horse, or if you, you know, really wanted to hurt the horse. You'd walk around and try to, you know, maybe after it rained, you'd split the ground open, and then you would just scatter seed. Now, that seems kind of counterproductive because the seed kind of just goes all over the place. Some of it goes into ground that it's going to grow. Some of it goes and just gets eaten by the birds. It's not overly efficient. The seed drill does is it allows you to punch the seed down to an optimal depth and then do it in a straight row. And so you're, there, this is, there's two advantages for this. One, the seed is actually at an optimal depth for growing. Two, it's easier to water. If everything is in a singular row, you can dig a trench next to that row, water the trench, and you're basically watering your entire row of crops at the same time by just dumping water. Because most of England is pretty sloped anyway, so you use gravity to essentially water your crops. Now, this works really nicely during the agricultural revolution. Instead of having to have people go and water each crop individually, you can do it much quicker. So things become faster. Crop rotation. Uh, did anyone learn this in science, what crop rotation does? Anyone do like plant biology or something like that? Wrong. No plant biology majors in here. Okay. I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to give you a more surface level version of this. But let's just say we're doing crop rotation. Crop rotation looks something like this. You put a little square that's going to be your new enclosed land. And on that enclosed land, we're going to have some crops. And what we do is we rotate the crops because certain crops take nutrients out of the ground and other crops put nutrients back into the ground. Um, we, we realized that once we dealt with like peanuts and other things like that that actually put certain nutrients in the ground that you needed, especially if you're utilizing crops, I think, cotton is actually really difficult to grow over and over and over again because it takes a lot of those nutrients out of the ground. So you have to have something else that goes there that puts the nutrients back in. Again, I'm not a scientist. Don't quote me on the crop. On the crop. Now, if you're doing this, let's just say you got cotton over here. Uh, you got potatoes. Um, 
you got peanuts and let's just say tomatoes or something like that. We need to have two more. Uh, tobacco, which also takes quite a bit out and very popular at the time. And let's just say you have an open field. So what they found is every once in a while you had to actually not grow anything for a season to allow that particular soil to replenish itself so that you can grow again. And so what you do with crop rotation, and you can put this in your notes, is you basically cycle your crops like this. So you just move them each season through the different areas of your land. And this allows for nutrients to get put back into the soil. Now this is important for us because they're starting to kind of systemize farming. And when you're doing that, it's going to maximize efficiency and minimize waste, which is a very capitalist concept, quite honestly. Um, but now let's, this is more of the evidence that I just gave you, right? Crop rotation, seed drill, and what's the last one? Enclosure acts, enclosure movement. Those three things help do what? Spur on the agriculture revolution. Now the analysis would be, I've already told you this, what would be the analysis of those three pieces of evidence? How did it affect Europeans? You had more food, so that's the positive effect. What's the negative effect? Less jobs. So less farmers, peasant farmers, are going to even be there. And so overnight, those peasant farmers are going to basically turn into landless rural wage earners, which basically means day workers. They've turned themselves, rather than being a farmer, now they're a seasonal employee. Oh, we need you to pick the crops but then you're not going to have a job anymore. So what they do, what Europeans do, is they actually have the cottage industry, which kind of is a stopgap in between the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. Because obviously when we get to the industrial revolution, things are going to change, it's going to move to factories. But that doesn't exist yet. The factory system isn't there yet. So before the factory system, but after the agricultural revolution, there has to be something in the middle where you're actually using these crops to produce things. And what we call that is the cottage industry. Now the cottage industry is actually focused on which portion of society? Women. The reason that women are incredibly important in this period is because men are out there trying to find jobs right now. Women are at home where they are in control of the household, right? They have domestic control. So while they're there, what you would see is a lot of these upper middle class merchants who are maybe buying truckloads of cotton. They're, they're going to come to a, a housewife and say, hey, look, I know you make clothes for your family all the time. If I give you X amount of bushels of cotton, can you make me 50 shirts? I'll come back in two weeks. That is basically the cottage industry. So it's early capitalism. It's like, hey, I have a product. I need you to turn this into something else. We do this today, right? If you're a shirt company, you get your natural resource from someone. You turn that natural resource into shirts, and then you sell those shirts. Now, some people just buy the shirt, print on the shirt, and then sell the printed shirt, right? This all had to start somewhere. And really, this is starting in the cottage industry where housewives, who really are just trying to make some extra money for their family, 
are going to say, yeah, I'll do that for X amount of dollars and this will allow me to feed my family or help feed my family. Now, eventually, by the time you get to the industrial revolution, there's an industry that's going to replace the cottage industry. What do we call it? Starts with a T. The textile industry. The textile industry will basically be the, the factory replacement of the cottage industry. And many of those housewives will actually go and work in textile factories. Mostly because back then you could pay women half what you could pay a man. And so if you could pay them half and you're a capitalist who's just trying to maximize your profits and women are probably better at making shirts than the men were back then, you hire the women. And of course, children, because you could pay children about a quarter of what you could pay a man. And plus their fingers are nice and small as far as their hands as well. So they can pull things out of the machinery that gets stuck. Most of the time they get their whole hand back too. So um, this process is, the industrial revolution doesn't just happen overnight. It's a process to it. So you have the agricultural revolution where you have a number of these things happening at one time. Then you have the cottage industry because you have if you're growing a bunch of cotton, that's great. But you have to turn it into someone, something. So you need someone to do that for you. So that's the cottage industry. And then the finished product eventually is going to be the factory system, which is going to come around later. Now, this word proletarianization, very communist word, really. Um, the proletariat means what? The working class. So when we talk about proletarianization, we are talking about the process of creating a working class. This is happening from 1760 to 1850. Now, it's, it's happening after that as well. The reason we put 17 or 1850 is because the Communist Manifesto comes in in about 1848. And um, th th that's kind of the culmination of all of the ills of capitalism all hitting at one time. Um, this unit, we will be getting into Karl Marx briefly uh, and talking about his perspectives on things. But what this does is it transforms this peasant farming class into what we call landless rural wage earners, which is basically day laborers, and eventually will become kind of the perfect situation for the Industrial Revolution because there are a number of people who are unemployed who will take jobs that are even for very low wages because they just need money. Now, there's a couple of people that you're going to be reading through this unit. Um, today, you're going to look at the potato. Uh, so we're going to read about the potato today. Uh, also, in your close reading that's due Thursday night, um, you're going to also be looking at uh, Friedrich Engels, who is the compatriot of Karl Marx. He's the one who actually funded Karl Marx's uh, work because Karl Marx pretty much just didn't have a job. And so Engels, who is very wealthy and owned a factory, if I remember correctly, uh, he actually will fund Marx, buy his house for him, and just allow Marx to write. Um, so Marx, uh, of course, writes the Communist Manifesto, but he also writes his largest book, Das Kapital, um, which is about the, the capitalist revolution as well. Um, and then the other person you're going to read is Thomas Malthus. Does anyone know who Thomas Malthus is? What does he do? Yes, he's, he's the one who believes that if you cannot feed your family, you shouldn't have one. 
he has this concept that population will always outpace food production. Um, and it, it, it becomes he, him along with David Ricardo are the ones who get economics the bad rap of being the negative science because they all believe that economics is actually really depressing. Um, David Ricardo, who I would write down also if you'd like, uh, maybe Thomas Malthus and David Ricardo. David Ricardo comes up with the concept of the iron law of wages, which basically says that wages will always rise to only subsistence levels. Meaning that no matter what you do, the lowest wages in your society are going to just keep people alive. Subsistence means that it's enough to survive. So he believed in the iron law of wages, which meant that even if you increased everybody's, let's just take minimum wage. If we raised minimum wage to $15 an hour just flat across the United States, the actual purchasing power of that $15 would not actually do much because when you raise everybody's minimum wage, the cost of products are probably also going to have to go up because you're not just overnight producing more things because people's demand are going to basically stay the same. And so what Ricardo believed is that when you are a relatively skillless laborer, meaning someone without a professional skill, your wage will always pretty much just track subsistence, what he believed was subsistence living. Um, and that's the iron law of wages. <laughs> okay. Um, last thing before we jump into the potato. I'm going to go over the factors of production. And I'm going to quickly go over this based on school. You guys know that school in the United States was actually created during the Industrial Revolution. And it was created actually to model itself much like a factory. That's why you have bells, because the bells were how they got people to go to break and things on factories. Um, now, it, it's also why we had those ni nice, neat rows back in the day where everyone had to sit in nice, neat rows. I will never put my classroom in nice, neat rows because I don't believe in it. But what the education system was is a good example of the factors of production. They are natural resources, human resources, capital resources, and entrepreneurship. On a multiple choice and short answer quiz that you're going to have on Monday, you are going to have a section of that multiple choice and short answer that's just going to be fill in the blank. It'll say, what are the four factors of production? You will write down natural resources, human resources, capital resources, and entrepreneurship. Next to them, you will give me examples of each of them. I'm going to give you an example right now. In this classroom, who or what is the natural resource? Your brain. Excellent work. Yes, your brain. Um, we are trying to turn your brain into a college graduate, basically. Um, so from a relatively existential point, yes, your brain. Uh, what about the human resources? Me. Yeah, so me, Mr. Mahoney, everyone in our history wing, any of the staff members, things like that, that help create the function of the school. What are the capital resources? The building, the tables you're writing on, the Chromebook we gave you, the pens and, and papers that you have, the lights that are on in the building, the heat that I turned on today. You're welcome. Uh, all of those things are capital resources. So anything that allows your business to function is the capital resources. Um, 
And then entrepreneurship is either the idea or funding for the, that idea. So in this particular situation, the entrepreneurs would technically be the Nevada Unified School District board members because they're the ones who allocate funds. They're the ones who decide how we're going to spend those funds, et cetera, et cetera. So they are technically the entrepreneurs. Okay. So any economic system has these four factors of production. The, the short kind of easy and not overly correct version of this is land, labor, and capital. That's what the way that uh, we used to make it short. Um, but I think it's easier just to remember the four factors of production. Does anyone have any questions on this? All right. I am planning um, going forward to get into the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I will not get into every new advancement in technology. Um, I will get into a lot of the effects of that. So we'll be looking theoretically at some of these guys like Malthus, like David Ricardo, um, like Jeremy Bentham. Uh, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, a lot of these guys that are talking about the ills of the Industrial Revolution. We'll look at the romantics in painting um, and how they're very critical of the Industrial Revolution. Um, so going forward, it's really us looking at some of the significant changes that happen, how it affects people's lives, and then people that are reacting to the Industrial Revolution and capitalism and how that reaction is going to change people's lives or experiment with new political things going forward. So we'll end uh, there for today. And after that, we'll get into some other stuff. If I were starting by giving you some contextualization of the Industrial Revolution, what might I say came right before the Industrial Revolution to increase the probability of new inventions and things? Yes, Isabella? The agricultural revolution, obviously, because when you have more and more food available, you, t you have the opportunity for free time. And free time is one of the most important things in human history in regards to advances. Now, you could say, don't worry, Cyril, our generation has mastered wasting free time. And you'd be right. But the thing is, whenever a society has more available time, they have the ability to have those increases. And to be fair, uh, your generation doesn't just waste time. They will also make have in incredible um, technological advances as well um, when you're not wasting time. But uh, one of the things about the Industrial Revolution is, and this is the very booky definition, it refers to the increased output of man-made goods beginning in England specifically, because that's going to be important for us. Thank you. Uh, during the 1700s. It is a, uh, going to be building on both the scientific revolution as well as the agricultural revolution. It's going to be incorporating a lot of the things that had happened in the agricultural revolution to increase uh, some of the products that will be turned into clothing uh, and other things that people will start using uh, in their houses and whatnot. It is also building on the already established commercial revolution. Uh, where people in Europe are very inclined to start buying things, especially more luxury items, um, if you are the upper middle class and upper class. So the Industrial Revolution, really what it does is it puts the output people are able to create, and it puts it on steroids, for uh, lack of a better term. Um, because what it does is it, it allows people to produce at a rate never seen in human history. Now, some of the groups that were going to benefit most initially are going to be groups that already had colonies overseas because they will have more accessibility to natural resources that may not be available in Europe. 
But one of the things that we have to look at specifically in this class is the way in which England becomes the most important and the first to industrialize. And so if I were going to be giving you some kind of, I don't know, thesis statement, I would say something like the Industrial Revolution began in England because of a number of resources, geographical, its geographical position, et cetera, et cetera. And so if we're looking at why England, and I promise this will probably be on an assessment, uh, either your midterm, your final, uh, the actual AP exam, and you'll have to be able to demonstrate why England is first. And there's a number of uh, reasons, and I, I would argue personally that one of the reasons that England is able to do this first is quite simply because they're an island. Um, the fact that they're an island gives them a number of geographical advantages over other countries that possibly have more probability for direct con conflict, uh, specifically in regards to um, war on a consistent basis. England gets to kind of pick and choose when it's fighting because it's an island. Um, it's incredibly difficult to invade, just ask Hitler. Uh, it, it doesn't really have the probability of being invaded like a France or like a Germany or uh, in Italy or something like that. Yes. Well, the, the nice thing about England, at least in history, is that other than the Hundred Years' War, they generally don't invade England or, sorry, invade the continent for gain, for, for land gain. Um, really, all they're doing is either defending themselves or fighting for a colony somewhere else, which if you're the best navy in the world, which they are, it makes it much easier to just fight in the sea before you even get there, which they do. Um, so the British kind of have a variety of reasons that this is that they are going to be the most dominant feature early on. Internally, within the country, there are a couple advantages that they have. Um, rivers are incredibly important for them and will lay the framework for early transportation, not just transportation of natural resources, but also transportation out of finished products until you get to the railroad system, which will get put in. And the rail system will just make this even faster. So whenever you look at these new technologies that are coming in, they are going to all kind of build on each other to increase, vastly increase the production time and the time it takes you to go from the factory to the person consuming that product or using that product in their home. And so if you look at, I think the railroad was something like at certain points, five to 10 times faster than horse and buggy, which I realize doesn't seem, I guess, astronomically more, but it is much faster. Um, if, it, if it takes you 10 hours to get somewhere by horse and buggy, but an hour and a half to two hours by railroad, it's clearly more efficient. Um, and you're able to do much more from a production side uh, and distribution side. Now, as far as we are concerned, there is a number of things, and I'm going to have you put this term uh, in, in your notes as well. I'm not sure if this is going to be on the AP exam, but it is a term. It's more of an economic term that helps you uh, understand that in any time of progress or any time of technological change, there is always what we call externalities. And externalities, there's an e, uh, X in there, EX, there we go. Uh, now you can see it way easier, right? Um, externalities 
are unintended consequences of whatever choice you've made. So whenever you make a decision to do something, there's going to be positive and negative externalities. It sounds a lot like karma. But the thing is, let's just say you are going to put in a um, a BART system that goes from um, Sausalito across the bay to San Francisco. And you're like, yes, finally, Marin County can get to San Francisco on a train. Well, there are some positive externalities of that. And there are some negative externalities of that. What might be a positive externality of moving a BART system from San Francisco across, maybe we'll just throw it underneath the Bay Bridge, or not the Bay Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, they would never do this because it's the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's such an icon that it would ruin pictures. But if you moved it, let's just say, to the uh, Richmond-San Rafael Bridge and you went across that way, now you could at least link it up with the other one and, and now you're able to get most places, right? Let's say you did that. Um, what would be some positive and negative externalities or consequences of that decision? Yeah? People can get to work faster. That's positive. Yeah? Uh, less people driving cars, possibly better for the environment. Yeah. Well, San Francisco has like a bunch of super broke homeless people who are like maybe not all bad, but not most people don't want to have like nothing around. Ah, so the possibility of people that you might consider undesirable portions of society being able or access quicker access to your your land of nourishment and plenty. Yes. Uh, what else? What else might, might be a possible negative externality? Yeah? Uh, okay, so that's a positive, that there's less traffic. Sure. What if the bridge falls down? That would be bad, very bad. And it did before. Like, in the 89 earthquake, that, that bridge actually did a multiple collapse which is, I'm sure it's fine. They, they may have to rebuild that bridge pretty soon here, actually. By boat? No, no, no. The Golden Gate's fine. It's the other one. It's the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. You got to go around through Vallejo, and, and, and that means that you got to go through that one little 37 highway, which is the parking lot of 37. And Becca will be very upset because she can't get home anymore. It'll just be a parking lot. It'll be great. That could be an unintended consequence that if you have to shut down the bridge in order to build BART, what are you doing to the economy for those couple of months that it might take to do that, right? Uh, another possible negative externality, what if, by, and, and this is totally hypothetical, what if we find that a certain type of bird just for some reason thinks that this is part of their traditional, like, way that they fly and then they, we just find that we built something where now they're just flying into it and we're killing a certain species of bird now that stuff happens when you do and i'm not saying that it's going to happen but anytime you do something there's always some kind of unintended consequence that you could not have predicted and that's kind of what happens with industrialization because what it does on a positive is that it increases capital production at a rate no one could have anticipated. Karl Marx even, who is the most, one of the greatest critics of capitalism and in, in the Industrial Revolution, will say that it is the most dynamic 
and most productive system ever created. The problem that he saw with it was its negative externalities. And that's some of the stuff that we're going to talk about here in a second is some of the things that possibly were positive, some of the things that were possibly negative in regards to the effect on people. And so for us, if I was giving you some evidence, which I'm going to, I'm going to show you specifically things that it was going to do. If I was going to give you some analysis, I would tell you some of the things and some of the effects that it has on people. Yes? Excellent. Uh, now, there's a group of people. Uh, I'm going to get to them in a second. The agricultural revolution leads to industry, and one of the first uh, industrial places that we see is the textile industry. Now, this will replace which system? Remember, if we were doing some contextualization, which system comes before the textile industry? And after the old open field system, yes. The cottage industry, which ends up becoming, it's also known, and this, the reason I tell you this particular uh, term is because I've seen it on AP exams. Uh, the cottage industry is also known as the putting out system. So if you see the term putting out system, it is the same as the cottage industry and has the same effect. But what that system does is it allows women specifically, housewives, who already have control over their own house, which is part of their at this time, another term that becomes important for us is gender roles, because at that time, one of the strongest gender roles women had was to stay at home, work in the house, actually educate the children. So it was it was mom's job to be cleaner, cook, teacher, uh, trainer. She, she had more jobs than the guy did, but she just didn't get paid for any of them. Well, in, in monetary money, but instead she got paid with intrinsic value which is how teachers get paid as well. Now, that's why it's a, a traditional um, women's job. That's an actual thing. Now, uh, does anyone have any questions in regards to how the factories are going to start replacing the cottage industry? Or is that something that we think we can make a strong connection to why? Why do you think the factory industry just replaces the cottage industry? Bleth? Yeah. So the same woman that you might be paying in the cottage industry for producing goods, now you can pay her to work in a factory for less money and make her make more for you. So I know that sounds like exploitation because it is. But what you do have is an increase of output of goods. So while the negative externality might be that yeah, there's some exploitation involved, the positive externality is you do see a rise in the, in the standard of living. Now, there's going to be actually a decrease in standard of living and then an increase in the standard of living. Why do you think that happens? Why do you, why do you see a, a decrease and then an increase of uh, standard of living? Yeah. Well, immediately things are getting worse because, like, with the Industrial Revolution, this is also where you're seeing, like, because Karl Marx predicted this a long time ago, but this is where you're really seeing, like, the bridge between labor and capital because under the textile industry, it was pretty much just people were working pretty independently and getting paid for their own work. But now you're not getting paid anything for what you actually produce. You're getting right. paid a fixed wage in a factory. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, the way that capitalism works is it specifically pays you for the – it's supposed to work where you, you are paid for the skill that is put into the job that you are doing. So – if you are doing a job 
that today a robot could do, then essentially your job is very unskilled from a human side. Meaning that if I could put a 14-year-old or 15-year-old and do the same job a 30-year-old can do with life experience, that is technically an unskilled labor position. Unless, of course, you're some savant Beethoven or something like that, and we're talking about something completely different. But if we're talking about working at McDonald's and you being able to put something in the microwave, you're probably relatively unskilled. Now, even some of those jobs have higher wages than minimum wage, take like in and out or something like that, which pays actually a really good wage compared to other fast food restaurants, right? Part of the reason for that is two things. One, if you've ever driven by an in and out and the line for the drive-through is short, first of all, you should have gone there. Secondly, you never see it because they have so much product going through as fast as possible that they can pay higher wages. They're kind of like the Walmart of fast food. Now, don't tell them I said that because they would probably resent it. But the thing is, they're just going through so much stuff so quickly that they can pay higher wages because they're making more money because they're going through products so much faster. If you go buy a McDonald's, you could go and at any time, and I rarely would you, you find an actual line. Just be like, eh, no problem. Um, now, McDonald's still makes profit because the stuff that they are selling you for a dollar costs them 10 cents or something like that. Like they're making profit still. But that's part of the reason why the wage gap is so different because their margins are different. Um, now, when it comes to the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that it does produce is the availability of jobs. The problem is the type of job. And the, the people that first get very upset with this, and now, again, if we're doing some uh, analysis of the impact of the factory system, you might say that there's a couple of people in society that are going to start becoming very upset about the change of uh, society. First of all, the first group that gets very upset and actually breaks into factories, starts smashing machinery. They're called the Luddites. Um, today, if you are someone who resists, resists change and decides, I'm not going to ever use a cell phone, or I refuse to make a social media account, or I'm just going to live out in Montana by myself with my hunting rifle so I don't get attacked by bears, then you're what we call a neo-Luddite. Um, and that is someone that is resisting change, trying to keep the way that things were before, have a relatively simple life without technology. Technically, a group that would also be considered kind of a neo-Luddite group would be like the Amish, where they essentially don't accept new technologies um, and instead live a more simple life. Yes? Isn't there a big difference there? Because the Amish never break even, they're doing the destruction because they are resisting change and trying to preserve their way of life. So the act that they did um, got them the name of the Luddites. But in today's terms, if you are a neo-Luddite, meaning a new Luddite, you are someone that is resistant to change. You don't have to have a, a violent act to be a neo-Luddite. Um, it, it Maybe it could help, but uh, it, it definitely does kind of characterize you in that setting and that if you believe that technology is not all good and that some technologies actually take away from things. Now, this, this is the first group of reformers. The second group is the, the group we call the social reformers. And the third group, while I'm thinking about it, is actually an art group, and those are the Romantics. Um, 
Now, I'm going to go to the Romantics and then go back to the social reformers. The Romantics believed that life within an industrial society was generally bad, um, that life was better back then. So they believe in the, the past as being better. Uh, they believe that the Industrial Revolution was having very negative consequences for society and that it was kind of similar to the social reformers in the, their belief uh, as humans kind of losing part of themselves. Now, the social reformers are many. I'm going to talk briefly about some of them. One of the guys, obviously, that we will need to talk about eventually is Karl Marx. Um, some of the other guys are guys like the economist, the economist that I talked to you about yesterday, David Ricardo, who came up with what? The iron law of wages. Remember this? Did I talk about this? Yeah, yeah. Where like basically the lowest wage in society would always pretty much just be subsistence living, meaning just enough to survive. Um, then you have someone like Jeremy Bentham, who comes up with the concept of utilitarianism, which is essentially the best form of government is just the best government that works for the most amount of people. It's kind of a cheater government because it's like anything can work as long as it's the best for everybody or the most amount of people. A couple of other guys, um, we talked about Malthus. Malthus believed in population control because he thought that there was going to be a significant problem with food shortage if you had this increase of population that was happening. Um, he was a little wrong. Now, as far as Marx is concerned, and the thing I want you to write down, and we will get more into this when we talk about Marx later, is that he believed that when this uh, science, or not the uh, scientific, when the Industrial Revolution, I spelled that wrong, when the Industrial Revolution happened, you lost what he called your species essence, which he believed that humans were different than animals or the, the rest of the animals because we had uh, certain characteristics that only we could express. The thing that he believed that we could express that others could not really had to do with the arts and things like that. Um, and, and he believed that humans had the opportunity to do that in a relatively good society. And he saw the Industrial Revolution as actually reducing that and taking that away from people. Um, and people instead were becoming more of a function of the production of capital. Um, and so what Marx will start pointing out is that humanity was losing itself uh, in order to be a function to create capital for someone else. Um, Marx is a very complicated person. We'll talk more about him tomorrow when we get into uh, his belief around communism. We'll look a little bit at the Communist Manifesto. Um, I'll also give you some perspective on Das Capital, which is his long book that no one read. Um, after he wrote communist, the Communist Manifesto. And we'll talk a little bit about why Marx, even probably at the end of his life, most likely did not even believe that communism would ever work. Um, but the reason that he's coming up with these things is because he's seeing some of the ills of the Industrial Revolution and saying, this is not going to work for everybody forever. And there is going to eventually be a proletariat revolution against this. And we'll talk about why he says that. But this concept of species essence is kind of where he starts, that people, that humans have a um, reduction of who they are because they're basically becoming a machine. And uh, very similar to someone like a Mary Shelley who, wrote, who writes Frankenstein. I'm not saying Mary Shelley was a communist. But um, she also had a very similar take in regards to the Industrial Revolution where you have this kind of concept around 
man losing who they are to become almost like a machine uh, or the same type of function like a machine. So um, now, eventually, most factories will early on be built near waterways because water power is going to be the early way that factories are powered. Ironically, uh, energy is kind of coming full circle, like starting with water power, which is a more traditional uh, function for energy because rivers generally just flow for you. So it's a very easy way to, to utilize the energy that they create. Um, we realized very quickly that coal could produce more energy, but you had to burn a lot of it. Uh, there's obviously a bit of a, a negative externality in regards to coal, which we all see um, specifically in London at times during the Industrial Revolution. There were times where you couldn't see the sky on a sunny day because it was so polluted. Um, now, it did make for some very nice Turner uh, paintings, though, So uh, because there's these nice little red and orange and yellowish hues that come through the, the smog. But... Um, now, as far as some of the consequences, again, of the factory system is that you see a drastic need for these things. Uh, labor laws, health standards, they basically don't have them. Um, unions will eventually become a thing. Unions are difficult because they, they initially have a, a number of positives that definitely will increase the standard of living for most workers. But there are also issues within and some positive and negative externalities of unions as well. Um, the whole system, though, becomes very mechanized, which is the point of the Industrial Revolution, is to maximize efficiency and minimize waste. The problem, of course, is that the Industrial Revolution is not really doing it on a long-term basis. They're doing it on a short-term basis. And many companies today actually have taken, especially companies like the uh, Silicon Valley companies, have really tried desperately to make their business models more projection-based, meaning that they're not simply going, how do I make the most amount of money today? But how do I make my money sustainable? Or how do I make my business sustainable? A lot of these companies actually don't turn a profit. Um, and if they were worried about turning a profit in the initial couple of years, they would cut corners. They would find ways to reduce what they're spending on. They would have to reduce the wages of the people that work for them. They might not ha be able to put a, a gym in the office and things like that. Like a lot of these Silicon Valley um, communities have actually thought about making and maximizing the workers' uh, joy or their standard of living when they go to work rather than just simply working them to the bone and then finding someone else. And that type of sustainable business model is more of a new business model. But the, the idea is that that type of business will sustain itself over time, whereas some of these businesses done in the Industrial Revolution make a ton of money right away, but then have a number of negative externalities that they have to deal with in the process of time. Um, the, the one biggest one that we're dealing with, obviously, today is pollution, because um, it is something that we've had to and you will deal with going forward. Uh, good luck. Now, um, as far as early factories, I'm going to show you a little bit of child labor. Everyone likes a little child labor in the morning. Uh, this kid's probably in, uh, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12 at the most. Uh, they, this is a textile factory. You can see they're kind of spinning cloth uh, on these wheels here. This is a, a sketch of what it might look like early on in textile factories. 
and the the changes of textile factories over time and eventually you'll get to something that looks more like this which again is very probably overcrowded um most factories had really high rates of people getting hurt and injured and quite honestly if you got injured back then it's very likely you just got fired and they hired someone else and you're like well that's not really fair it's not fair but there's lots of people that need jobs so is it fair for the person that doesn't have a job to maybe have an opportunity i don't know it's up to them um but for you it doesn't feel very fair and in the industrial revolution the point is just to continue the production line so you just have to just hire somebody else and who cares about you know, making someone retire early or ruining their life. Um, now, child labor is going to be consistent uh, throughout this period until you get to like the late 1800s where you start to see more and more labor laws, specifically around types of factories. So one fact or one system that becomes more specifically dealing with child labor is the coal mines because coal mining is so dangerous, but they were utilizing children to do it. So it becomes incredibly difficult um when you're basically just destroying a generation uh which is what they're doing yeah yeah they got paid um they got paid about a quarter of what a man got paid the children did um more child labor here's some water power you can kind of see uh you basically drop a giant for making this super simple you drop a giant wheel with paddles on it in a river and allow that kind of movement of the wheel to create power um, now, eventually, we move away from that and go to coal burning stuff uh, that is is also very uh, effective as well. Um, did I talk about this picture yet? So these guys are, uh, does anyone know what they're working in? They're, they're in a mine. So they are uh, sifting coal. And so what what you do when you sift coal is there's a giant chute that just has a bunch of coal that they drop through it and then they they push water through and it's the water has to go pretty fast because it's taking the impurities off of the coal because coal doesn't just come out of the ground like perfect you have to clean it essentially so these guys are you know it, their hands are underneath them and they're cleaning through the coal and actually um there's a guy who writes what uh his article is called the bitter cry of children which we'll read tomorrow and he talks about this process and how he did it for like an hour and his hands were like just cut and bleeding and just awful. And these kids are doing it for 10, 12 hours a day. Um, most coal miners did not live much later into their 20s or thir early 30s at the most. Um, most of them got black lung disease. Many of them had uh, significant issues with being hunchbacked because in the mines you had to bend over so much that they just lived their life bent over essentially 10 to 12 hours a day um and they you know there's also when you read the article tomorrow uh i'll read it with you there's a, a joke that one of the kids says where he goes oh that that boy carries his boy with him meaning that because he was hunched over he looks like he's just giving someone like a piggyback ride or something like that um but that was a common occurrence for a lot of these kids uh, working in coal mines. So eventually they're like, hey, maybe kids should go to school until they're like 12 or something, which sounds like a decent idea, I guess. Um, and then, of course, the environmental effects are also a bit of a negative externality. Now, I don't want to say that everything was bad because not everything was bad. Um, the Industrial Revolution makes it possible for many of the things that we are we take it uh, for granted today. So 
while there are a number of negative externalities, and quite honestly, with history, historians, especially historians today, really like to focus on negative externalities because people generally get more outraged and they like to listen to things that were negative than they do things that were positive. And so most historians like to focus on the negatives of things that happen um, and try to create change. That particular group of people or type of historian is called what? Uh, usually those are progressives. So people that have um, a cynical view of history and how history has a negative impact on specific groups of people um, and how you need to change society in order to make it better. That's generally a progressive historian. So someone like that would be someone like a Noam Chomsky or a uh, Howard Zinn, someone like that. Howard Zinn died recently, but he, he's the one who wrote the, uh, one of the textbooks that you guys read a portion of in AP US history. The thing about Zinn, though, is that Zinn is incredibly biased when he writes. Like, he does not pretend to be equal, fair, and anything like that. One of his books, actually his autobiography, is called You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, which basically is him saying, I'm not trying to be neutral. I am incredibly biased. Um, and that's the way he was. Uh, now, Zinn writes a number of articles that are, and a number of things in his books that are great. Um, and then he, people found later that some of his stuff was very light on uh, evidence and very heavy on conjecture, which means what? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly opinion-based. And so uh, if you do read Zinn, what you find is that he creates a very strong, strong progressive narrative for how things should go. Now, in this period, the guys that are very similar to a Zen is someone like Karl Marx, who also is incredibly uh, critical of the way that the Industrial Revolution and capitalism was affecting society. And so when you look at the Communist Manifesto, to be fair, when we look at it tomorrow, one of the things that I'm going to have you do is I'm going to give you the America test. And in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx gives you 10 things that he says, in a communist country, these 10 things are going to be a thing. And I'm going to have you on those 10 things, check off the things that America does. And we're going to find out how communist we are. It's the commie test. And if we're above 70% commie, we're clearly communist. If we're under 70%, we're still at a D. It's fine. We're just kind of communist, but not really. It'll be fine. You guys don't look impressed. It's okay. Um, so, last thing. When it comes to another possible negative externality, and it's a positive as well, but I'll give you the negative first, is urbanization. Now, who took AP Human? Woohoo! Um, someone give me a pull factor. Isabel? Mm hmm Yeah, jobs can absolutely be a pull factor. What else could be a pull factor? Uh, basically, like, maybe attractions like San Francisco has all the Golden Gate Bridge attractions. Sure. Uh, tourist attractions can absolutely be a pull factor. Now, it, when it comes to actually moving somewhere, the most, the strongest pull factor is generally jobs, especially if you're low on them. So, in the agricultural revolution where you're seeing a significant shift away from peasant farming to more seasonal work 
a lot of people are going, okay, there's got to be jobs somewhere. And so people were moving to factories. They weren't moving to cities. They were moving to factories and going, oh, there's a factory over here. That means I, I can get a job. And so what you find during the Industrial Revolution is you get a lot of cities that actually are industrial cities that become large metropolises, basically, or large cities, and sometimes even overnight. And if you look at a, uh, a city today that is very planned, and you look at it from the sky like a bird's eye view, what do you think it looks like? Like it's, it's very planned, it's thought out. What would a city look like today? Like a grid, probably, right? Now, in the Industrial Revolution, there are no grids. The reason there are no grids is because most people just find the factory and if you, if you need to work and you need to find somewhere to live, people are just throwing up tenements and houses as quickly as possible. Tenements are basically apartment buildings. They're throwing them up as quickly as possible. And so they're just building basically in a spiral because they're getting as close as you can to the factory so that, you, you know, you don't want to live way over here and have to walk at night because that's the thing is there's really no streetlights early on and you work from dawn to dusk. So if you're way far away from the factory, then you got to walk too far, you might be in danger. So they're, they're just building in this kind of spiral looking thing. Um, and so if you look at most industrial cities, they're not very planned. That's why there's a lot of one-way streets. That's why there's issues with traffic because our cars have gotten bigger, but streets generally haven't. And so there's a, a significant issue if you go to an industrial city that wasn't redone um, after the Industrial Revolution with traffic and other things like that. And that's one of the reasons why in Europe, a lot of the cars are much smaller because they have to be. Um, they fit in a lot more areas that you couldn't imagine trying to fit them in. You go to Barcelona, it's a really good example. Now, Barcelona is actually incredibly gridded, um, but it, it wasn't a huge industrial city. Uh, it was built kind of over time in these very nice quarters. Uh, yeah. It did a little bit got blown up in the Civil War. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, and, and Barcelona was one of the um, the hubs of the Spanish Civil War. So, yeah, uh, it, it does. But it, Barcelona is one of those old cities that actually does have a grid. Um, if you see it from the sky, it's actually they're perfect grids. Um, there's other bigger cities that that's not the case. Now, Paris is a little different because they rebuilt Paris in the 1800s. Um, in the late 1800s because of revolt because they wanted to make the streets wider so that the Parisians couldn't revolt all the time. Um, it's harder to just go to the barracks and the streets are too wide. They're like, we need more wood. We're out of wood. Okay. Um, does anyone have any questions on this? So we're going to end there today. And tomorrow we're going to get into the social reformers like Marx. We'll look at the bitter cry of children. Uh, we'll look at angles. So all the reading that you're doing at home and the reading that we're going to do in class is going to kind of culminate in a Socratic seminar on Friday. Um, so you do need to make sure you get that done. Otherwise, we'll start tomorrow with marks and, and stuff like that.